Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. five Sunday months. I gotta, I gotta make a confession. Uh, it seems like you get a lot of meaty coverage of the subject that we're talking about, and I'm, I'm super excited about uh, the subject for today, and uh, I've really been blessed by God's Word throughout this month, and uh, I, I don't want to take for, for granted uh, just the beauty of coming together as His body and studying uh, the words of Jesus, studying the words of Scripture. They change our life. They change how I live my life, and there's nothing more powerful you know, when God puts God's word in your mouth, you speak with the same power that created the cosmos. You realize this, when God puts his word on your mouth and you speak under his unction and anointing, you speak with the same power that created the cosmos. God declares his word. And uh, if you have a Bible today, I want you to go with me, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11. Uh, before we jump into the message, let me just go ahead and say the month of December, of course, starts next week. We're gonna begin a brand new series called Home for Christmas. And uh, in this series, Home for Christmas, I want to put you on alert so you can be praying and partnering with us. We're doing an entire month of evangelism uh, for this month of December. So that is to say every weekend we're going to be preaching for people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this series is called Home for Christmas. There's something about being home, whatever home is, right? Uh, Wealth can build a house, but Christ can build a home, right? Takes Christ to build a home. And when people come home for the holidays, we're talking about coming home to the heart of God. And so that's what we're gonna do all month long. And so if you ever have people in your life who you just like one time a year invite to church, like you save it all up for your big ask, okay? Then your big ask should come in the month of December, okay? And to invite them. And we're gonna preach the gospel, declare God's good news through Jesus Christ and see God save people in the month of December. Can anybody agree with us on that? That we'll see people and lives be touched and transformed in the month of December. So we're excited about that. And again, that begins next week. Matthew chapter 11, I'm gonna begin reading in verse 25. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you, Father, have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, the understanding. You've hidden it. And you've revealed them, these things, we're going to talk about these things, to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. He said, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Reveal Him being the Father. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, Jesus speaking, and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, for we hear your word and we consciously choose to push away objections to what we're about to hear and to trust in what you say. Regardless of our experience, regardless of how life has treated us up to this point, we consciously choose 
to believe eternal words. And I pray you would help each person in this room believe those. And that, Lord, when we leave this place, we would leave different than the way we came. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. So we're concluding this series called No Fear November. And I want to just say this series has been designed to help the church, us, build a counterculture, a stronger culture than that of the world. The culture in here, when I say in here, not the building, I'm talking about the people of God, right, is stronger than the morphing forces out there. To have, if you will, the fear of God be stronger than all other fears, To understand this must be stronger than that. And what we've been doing through the month of November is looking at different contrasts, right? Today, we want to talk about why rest must be stronger than exhaustion. We want to talk about why the yoke of Jesus, the rhythm of life that he gives, must be stronger than the rhythm of life that culture provides to us. I'm entitling this message, God's Rhythm of Life is greater than fear. God's rhythm of life will disarm fear. Disarm fear. It really will. And when I was researching this subject over the last few weeks, as I began to read the subject of rest and article and book and just the pace of life in our modern culture, I came across one concept in almost every book I read. It's a fascinating concept. It's such a compelling concept that I thought, man, I have to share with the church. It's this concept called Kiroshi, Kiroshi, Kiroshi. And the word Kiroshi is literally the Japanese term that literally means death by overwork, death by overwork. There is a phrase in modern society today called occupational sudden mortality, occupational sudden mortality. What that means is that your work is literally killing you. Your work is literally physically destroying you. Now, the major causes of Kiroshi in today's world are heart attack. They're stroke due to stress. Some people die of starvation due to being too busy to eat, so their bodies will wither away. This is true, okay? They're too busy to eat, so they don't eat. But it's death by overwork. You say, Craig, is this new? Well, This phrase really began to be coined in the 1980s. One of the most uh, famous victims of death by overwork or Kiroshi was a guy named Kami Suji. He was a Japanese man in the mid-1980s. He was a high-flying broker who loved finance. And um, he routinely put in 90-hour work weeks. So in the office, it was about 90 hours a week. And then he would come home and work more. And he was a young pal. I mean, he was, he was so successful. He became the golden boy of Japan in the midst of their economic boom. He was doing, I mean, people started looking at him. CEOs and, 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 and high-flying companies came in and said, this is the type of work ethic you got to have to make it in today's world. And, and not only did he put the 90 hours in, but then because he put the 90 hours in and was so successful, then after his 90 hours, he had to go and he started consulting much older finance folks. And so now he's 90 hours. Now he's got addition to that, the consultant of other bankers. And in the late 1980s, as you all remember, the the stock market crashed. When the stock market crashed in Japan, he took on more pressure and more pressure. And finally, Suji dropped dead at the ripe age of 26. Death by overwork. Did you know every year in the world there are thousands, now hundreds of thousands of people who die by overwork? Kiroshi, death by overwork. 
And this is an important factor because the pace of life that we live in in the Western world and the pressure of our culture keeps pushing us. We actually take pride in saying we're going into the hustle and bustle of this season. We take pride in that. That's almost like a butt, like a, you know, a badge that we wear, right? This pressure cooker of culture. Now, sometimes there are underlying issues, right? Like mental or physical health issues. But the, that doesn't take away from the fact that we are in a pressure cooker of time and stress and outcomes and energies and products and producing more and more. And those do not uh, dissipate or help to dissipate the mental health issues. Those intensify the mental health issues, It began this week to make me start thinking about some of the people who've passed away in recent culture, like the great chef, Anthony Bourdain. Remember Anthony Bourdain last year? Anthony Bourdain was from New York City. His fellow chef, Eric Reipert, an amazing, amazing man, reflected on Anthony Bourdain's life. This is what he said. It never struck me as peculiar, but it was as if he gave everything to his work and then he had nothing, zero, left for himself afterwards. Most producers and crew don't work on every single episode, but Anthony did. It's just too much, especially if you have a family. But that wasn't an option for Tony. Tony was going to work. In response, he goes on to an inquiry about whether or not he would ever retire. Bourdain once said, I gave up on that. I've tried. I just think I'm too nervous. I just think I'm too neurotic, too driven. I would have had a different answer a few years ago. I might have deluded myself into thinking that I'd be happy in a hammock or gardening. But no, I'm quite sure I can't retire. I can't retire. Maybe Anthony Bourdain experienced the pressure of death by overwork, self-inflicted wounds in his life past. Death by overwork, Karoshi. In my world, the world of pastoring, now I don't say this for empathy points at all, but pastoring is a very stressful job. It is not one to be desired when you're a young buck coming up in a Western world, okay? And again, I don't say that for empathy points at all. In fact, I actually love what I'm doing right now. Uh, my wife and I, we're good. Our family's good. We love this church. We're having the time of our lives doing what we're doing. But if you would just pause and just open up Google, don't do it right now, and research stats on pastors, you will find I'm occupying one of the most lethal positions in American culture. It's a lethal occupation, not only to kill the person, but to kill everything good and godly that's about that person. It's very highly lethal. There just seems to be in our world, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy of the pressures of the church planning world. One that rocked my world last year, rocked my world, was the story of Andrew Stockland. Andrew Stockland pastors a church, young 30s in Inland Hills, uh, California. His dad died of a rare diagnosis at 55 years of age. 55 years of age last year, his dad, or two years ago, his dad passed. When his dad passed, he felt the need. Nothing ever tells us that he felt the call to pastor, but it does tell us that he felt the need to fill in and continue his dad's ministry. He didn't want the ministry to drop to the ground. So he felt this pressure of continuing his dad's ministry. And it was a larger church. And so immediately, as soon as he took on the leadership role as pastor, he felt all of the pressure that comes when all eyes are on you. He didn't understand that pressure Uh, before he took on this occupation. Well, very soon after he took on the church, with a panic attack. The panic attack led to deep depression in his life, which led to more anxiety and a breakdown. Eventually, the church that he served had forced him to take a four-month sabbatical. 
So he took a four-month sabbatical with his wife and his children. And in that four-month sabbatical, he tried to get healthy again. After his sabbatical, he came back. And it's actually very haunting. It's very, very haunting. You can watch a sermon. My wife and I did. We watched the sermon when he came back from his sabbatical. He stands on stage with his wife and he talks about, uh, he talks about how to live life from a cave. And it's the story of Elijah being in a cave with all the confusion, stress, and depression and difficulty life had to offer and trying to get still enough to listen to God's still small voice. And it's haunting to watch the sermon now. Why? This is what he said. He said, it's not easy to be a pastor's wife, Stockland told his congregation. She sees all of the behind the scenes and especially through this journey that's been really difficult. I've not been very fun and easy person to live with. It was his first sermon after taking a four months of adequate at the request of church leadership who had asked him to take some time to get better, Stockland said. They continue on. We still have a long way to work through it, said his wife, Kayla, but we're all in during the sermon. You guys, he loves this place so much. He loves this church. He didn't want to stop. He would have kept on going and going and going and going, and it probably would have cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. What happened after that Sunday sermon? The next Sunday morning, he ended up self-inflicted wounds in the office of the church that he served. The pressure in the world, the pressure in the church, the pressure in Western culture, we live in a culture of exhaustion. That's where we live. That's how we live as Westerners. In 1899, a man named William James, he wrote a diagnosis of American overwork. This is what he wrote. A fabulous, fabulous statement. This is what he wrote, 1899. He said, Americans had become accustomed to overwork, to living with an inner panting and expectancy and bringing breathlessness and tension to work. Americans wore stress and overwork like fancy jewelry. They internalized bad habits caught from the social atmosphere, kept up by American tradition, and idealized by many as the admirable way of life. He also pointed out that overwork is counterproductive, much to our, against what we actually believe. If living excitedly and hurriedly would only enable us to do more, he said, then there would be some compensation, some more excuses for going on so. But the exact reverse is actually the case goes on and says, studies reveal that 37% of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation a year. In fact, only 14% of Americans take vacations that last longer than two weeks. Americans take the shortest paid vacations of anyone in the world. And 20% of those who do often spend their vacation staying in touch with their jobs through their computers or on their phones. The point, even when we do vacation, we as Americans, we do it poorly. So watch church, we have industries and we have rhythms and we have frameworks that are literally facilitating exhaustion on a cultural level. Now it's one thing to talk about exhaustion on a personal level. I'm not talking about that today. We'll get there in a minute. I'm talking about cultural level exhaustion. The David Nee Foundation was started doing research on law students. This is what David Nee found. He said depression among law students after their third year, which is graduation, depression now in current law students is 40% with 15% of those with clinical depression committing suicide. 15% of law students in America right now don't make it through law school, not because they dropped out, but because they take their own life. A group of physicians came together, 
okay? And they came to do research, and this is just in the last year, about all of, of, of the pressure cookers of the Western world. And they realized that the way our culture is framing us is actually leading to our physical breakdown. This is what they said. They said this, generally stressful events are thought to influence the pathogenesis of physical disease by causing negative affective states, e.g. feelings of anxiety and depression, which in turn exert direct effects on biological processes or behavioral patterns that influence disease risk. I thought this was crazy. Exposures to chronic stress are considered the most toxic because they are most likely to result in long-term or permanent changes in the emotional, physiological, and behavioral responses that influence susceptibility to, and of course, disease. Look at me, church. Our culture is conspiring to make you sick and susceptible to long-term disease. That's how it's run. That's how it moves. Very encouraging, right? This is supposed to be a good news talk on a Sunday morning. I dare you this week, I dare you, triple dog dare you, to read the book this week in praise of slowness. In praise of slowness. Game changer. Guy named Carl Honor. In this book, the author had this amazing, what I call existential moment that marked him. Here's the existential moment. By the way, he, he wrote this book out of that existential moment. It led to this book. You say, Craig, what happened? Carl Honor was at an airport one day. He was a single, I mean, he was a young dad. So he had one child. Didn't even have two, three, four, five munchkins yet. Just one. And he's trying to figure life out and he's stressed. And he's in the airport going from job to job. And he looks over at the bookstore. You know how the bookstore, they get those little little rotunda thing, turn them with the little books. And he looks over at the bookstore and Carl Honor sees on the bookshelf a book that says the one minute bedtime. People say, is this an actual product? This is an actual product. Okay. It's called the one minute bedtime story. And he thought, man, this is fantastic. Like I'm, I'm maxed out. He thought the idea of reducing this, this uh, you know, ritual of hanging out with your kids at bedtime, the fact that you can reduce this ritual to just a one minute efficiency technique. He said, you know, I, I can just start doing something short with my kids every single night. Um, who has time for the tension and narrative? I'm, I'm worn out. I don't want to read the whole book to you. Summary, you, kids, you're getting one minute summary, right? That's all you're getting tonight. It's time for me to go back to the couch. And, and people say, is this an actual book? This is an actual book. It's called The One Minute Bedtime Story. He said he's in the airport and he said time stopped. He said, I have never in my life had such a horrible moment. He said, it's like this aura wrapped around me. And he asked himself, what is wrong with me? I'm taking management techniques on efficiency and applying it to the children in my life who just need my love. What has happened? He went on from that airport experience and wrote a book called In Praise of Slowness. I recommend this book. I really do recommend this book. Slow food, slow sex, slow rest. I've got your attention now. Um, (laughs) Slow everything. And in this book, he begins to communicate what it means to slow down. But it's true, right? We face pressure in this nation that people don't face in other cultures. They just don't face in other cultures. People say, you know what? I can believe the American dream. Well, the American dream is also an American lie. And what that American lie is that in my 20s, somehow I can spend two to three to five to seven years of my life busting my tail, 
to make a lump sum of money and then I can change that season and go back to my other life and be further along than my peers. Well, it's an American law, lie. Why? Because season becomes lifestyle in America. So there's no sense in saying I can have a season of it because season becomes lifestyle. Why? Because the engine is that powerful. I can't articulate enough. I really can't articulate enough. I know this by personal experience, the power of formation when you get in an engine that's like Western culture. It forms you in negative ways. So people believe the lie. Here's what the lie is. You can abuse yourself for two or three years and then you can actually come out intact and then you can actually get ahead in life. I was reminded again this week of uh, an Anabaptist we studied in seminary. This Anabaptist in seminary, he talked about American culture as being us being in the belly of the beast, the belly of the beast. And he says, see, this is what the beast does. The beast does, what the beast does is it swallows you whole and then it brings you into its stomach. And once you get in its stomach, its juices and its acids are designed to slowly disintegrate you and to break you down and to extract life from you and then pass you out as waste. He calls American culture the belly of the beast. Isn't that true though? Like what is a snake? What is a snake? Have you ever seen one of those um, disgusting, gigantic, anti-God snakes in Florida? Have you guys ever seen this? I mean, anti-God snakes, okay? Totally opposite of anything good, godly, and virtuous, okay? These nasty, huge snakes down in Florida. And what do they do? What do they do? What do they do? They trap you, right? They latch onto you, and then what do they do? They coil you. So what they do is they coil around you and then they slowly crush you and take your breath. And then what do they do? They climb to the top of your body. Then they unhinge their jaws. And when they unhinge their jaws, they begin to swallow you whole and basically in their belly break you down with their juices and then you are gone. And that's why the enemy, by the way, is called the snake in scripture. That's why the metaphor for the enemy is a snake. Why? Because it's one giant swallowing appetite. That's what a snake has. We, in Atlanta, Georgia, are in the belly of the beast. Now, this is a good news talk, right? Seriously, it's a good news talk. Because in the midst of all this, you know what Jesus' message is? It's so good, church. Jesus' message is so good. You know why it's so good? Because it is a message of rest. It's a message of rest. And I want you to see this. Jesus, go back to our passage in Matthew 11. He doesn't say, I want you to come to me and I'll make you successful. He doesn't say, come to me and I'll make you influential. He doesn't say, come to me and I'm gonna make you on top of your class. He didn't say, come to me and I'm gonna reap, heap religious commands on you. He said, come to me and I'm gonna give you rest. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation to rest. He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Listen to me, church. Salvation is about rest. It's about rest. The way of Jesus is rooted, rooted and anchored in rest. No matter what we've heard, the message, rhythm, the pace of life of Jesus is one of rest. It is my vision that I, I'm speaking to me too, and you, we learn to get a black belt in mastering the way of rest in our lives. See, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, he's actually given what we call a contrast talk. A contrast talk, what do you mean? He is highlighting the yoke of the Pharisees 
which leads to death. He's highlighting the yoke of the world, which leads to perishing each and every time. The yoke of the world, and then he offers his yoke. Now, there's two key ideas in Matthew 11 that Jesus highlights here. Let's talk about those. Number one is this idea that the culture you and I live in by default has a blindness to the wisdom of God. So the first thing Jesus wants us to understand, first and foremost, if we're gonna follow Jesus in a rhythm of rest, is that we've gotta realize the culture around us is blind to God. And they're blind to God's wisdom. What do you mean? That's why he says, I thank you, Father, you've hidden it from who? All the presidents and all the kings and all the college professors. Why? Because they're learned. They're wise. That's what he said. First step, I've I've hidden it from those people. I've got secret counsel. And if you're wise and you're learned and you're understanding, that's not how this kind of wisdom comes. He says, I thank you that you've hidden it from them. And who have you revealed it to? You revealed it to the children. So listen to me from the outset. We will not gain insight by listening to the culture of the world. Can I just say that? I'm all for being cultural relevant. I think you know that as your pastor by now. I love reading about culture. I love being relevant to culture. But at the end of the day, we're not gonna gain insight about the ways in which we are to live and the yoke and the pace of life Jesus gives to us by listening to the culture of this world. If you and I listen to secular wisdom, it will distort you. You will burn out, you will wear out, you will fall into the trap of idolatry. This is, Jesus said, secret wisdom. I call it a secret sauce. This is a secret sauce and he only gives it to children, okay? He only reveals it to children, people who are dependent, people who are not pure, but people who are willing to say, I can't do it on my own. That's that's the type of people, okay? And the wisdom is what? What is the secret wisdom? You ready? Resting in Jesus ultimately leads to more fruitfulness. The world doesn't know that. The world doesn't know that. So we have to learn to resist, watch this, the blindness of secular wisdom. We have to resist the blindness of secular wisdom that is always trying to get us and telling us technique, 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 management, management, go hard, crush it, crush it, crush it. We love, you open up Facebook, everybody's got, I can't scroll one little swipe without seeing somebody else crushing it. Man, crush that sermon today, crush that. I mean, we just crush it, crush it, crush it, crush it, technique, 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 crush it, technique, crush it, crush it, crush it, technique, 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 go hard, go hard. Jesus says, you can do that, I'm fine with you, go ahead and do that. But if you wanna come to me, I'll give you rest. You can live that way or you can live this way, your choice. But you come to me, I'm gonna give you secret sauce. I'm gonna give you secret counsel, I'm gonna give you rest. And if we don't, listen to me, church, if we don't go to Jesus, the church will be marked out by burnout. It will be marked by, by, by burden. It will be marked by compromise. And listen, to, I want to say this clearly. Hear me, and I want you to hear me clearly. Jesus is not glorified. Jesus is not seen as beautiful. And Jesus is not desirable to unbelievers if his followers are just as exhausted, stressed out, worn out in the same exact way the rest of the world is. We, we actually mar the beauty of Jesus when we live just as worn out as an unbeliever, when we live just as stressed out as an unbeliever. When's the last time you met someone and you asked, man, hey, how's it going? And they looked at you with just a smile. <laughs> and they just said, you know, actually, if I, if I just had to sum up my life in one word, <laughs> it would just be margin. Space. <laughs> Free time. <laughs> Like, when's the last time in in Western culture you met somebody? Hey, man, how you doing? Margin. (laughs) 
People are, they look at you dumbfounded. They're like, are you a trust fund kid or what? Like, what is happening in your life? Oh, it's because I have a secret sauce. Really? Yeah. Um, Secret wisdom. I have living water. And they're like, what? I mean, like, they would just be so attracted to the beauty in you. Listen to me. A restful spirit is spiritual warfare in a culture of exhaustion. A margin life is spiritual warfare in a marginless world. So we have to learn. It is a learning. We have to learn to what? Rest in Jesus. Now, how do we do this? We do this by examining the yoke on our life. Everybody say, examine my yoke. That's what you got to do. You got to examine your yoke. A.J. Swoboda in a fabulous work on the Sabbath, this is what he says. He says, our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In battling at these sacred authors of hyperactivity and progress and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and pant for value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that in Paul's words is ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Never able to come. He continues on. Look what he says. Our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We've become, this is a powerful statement, perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, spiritually malnourished, psychologically overworked people in human history. So let me ask you an honest question this morning. How you doing? How you doing? Now, how are you really? How are you really doing? I'm a pastor, which those of you know that, which means I do quirky, inappropriate, yet biblical things at awkward times in social interactions. And you know that about me. So when I get around people, I ask questions. And one of the questions I ask that I always get this response. No one's ever asked that question to me before. I know, that's why I asked it. I ask people, hey man, how's your inner woman doing? Hey man, hey man, how's your inner man, how's your inner man doing? And they're like, is that a reference to Ephesians three? Exactly. You know, it's like, how's your how's your inner man doing? No, but seriously, you're not going to live in a culture today that people are going to come up to you and ask you, how's your inner man doing? How's your inner woman doing? How's Atlanta treating you? How's Woodstock treating you? Um, are you becoming more like Jesus because you live where you live in the streets you live? Are you increasing in the fruit of the Spirit based upon the location of where you live, how you live? Your friends look at you and they're like, man, Atlanta is good for you. It's good for you. Is the fruit of the Spirit increasing in your life? Are you ready? Are you thinking in your mind, I'm going to hit home with you, okay? This is as clear as diagnostic question I can give you. Are you thinking in your mind right now, I can live like this for another 30 years? Or are you like, I don't... I don't, I don't, I 
don't know how much longer I can live like this. We actually, as Jesus followers, are called to be in touch with our souls. To actually really examine our yoke. We have to guard our hearts because everything else in life flows from that heart, right? All that we do flows from that. We're called to have rest. And Jesus' invitation is to come with me and I will give you rest. So the rest I want to talk about today from a practical standpoint is the practice of Sabbath. Everybody says Sabbath. Now, this Sabbath word is an essential feature since the beginning of creation. God Sabbath on the seventh day. Sabbath is actually a gift, okay? I want to, for the next few moments, share with you what Sabbath is. So let me define Sabbath. Then I want to share with you what role Sabbath plays. And then I want to share with you actually how to practice Sabbath. So what is Sabbath, all right? This is Sabbath rest. I figured I would use a man who lives in an area that doesn't like Sabbaths. This guy's name is Pete Scazzaro, Queens, New York. That's not exactly a place that likes to rest. And this is, this is Pete Scazzaro saying, defining what Sabbath is. He said, the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word that means to cease, to stop working. It refers to doing nothing related to work for a 24 hour period, 24 hour period each week. It refers to the unit of time around which we are to orient our entire lives as holy, meaning separate from the other six days of creation. Watch this. Sabbath provides an additional rhythm for an entire reorientation of our lives around the living God. On Sabbath, we imitate God by stopping our work and resting. So 24 hours, shut it down and rest. Now you say, Craig, is this biblical? Of course it is. Genesis chapter two, God's Sabbath after creation. You know what the whole Torah says? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The whole Torah says this, remember and keep the Sabbath. That's the practice of believers. Are you ready? Remember, keep, remember, keep, remember, keep. That's really the whole Christian life. Remember, keep, remember, keep, remember, keep. Remember the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. This is the practice. I have to remember and keep. You go into Leviticus chapter 23, God reiterates, keep the Sabbath. You go to the book of Deuteronomy. What does God reiterate? Keep the Sabbath. Now, some of this, some of you are at this point in the message, you're thinking, hey, Pastor Craig, I got it. I take one day off per week. No, 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 no. You're like me, okay? And this is where the book really convicted me. A day off, a day off is when undisciplined, unsabbathing people get to all the chores that they neglected all week because they are abusing their lives. Okay? So that's, that, that's what Eugene Peterson calls a bastard Sabbath. I love that from Eugene. What is he saying? That is an illegitimate child of what God's true intention for Sabbath is. So Sabbath is not a day off. That's the bastard Sabbath. Okay? It's not that. It's more than that. It's an intentional, something that's beyond catching up the chores that we didn't hit for the last six days. So Sabbath is something different. If you were to study, this to me is fascinating, all the other creation myths. I don't know if you know this or not. Did you know there's all kinds of other creation myths other than the book of Genesis? Let me give you one example, the Enuma Elish. If you study the Enuma Elish or any others, you would find one fascinating thing. There is no other God, and I say God, lower G, in history that writes a story that gives work dignity but builds rest into the middle of it. So it is biblically accurate to say the most defining thing of our story of our God is that we work and we rest. That's our most Christian distinctive. There's no other creation account where God writes into the story the dignity of work, using your hands, engaging, and then putting rest right in the middle of it. In other words, 
Work is a gift, not a curse, but don't work too much or you'll be cursed. Okay, you'll be cursed. It's a beautiful gift we have. Let's think of Daniel for a minute. Remember Daniel? He was taken off into Babylonian captivity. Remember this? And he had to learn what? He had to learn the literature and all the language of the Babylonians. But you know what he did? He entered into Babylon with a subversive reality, a subversive story, one that that would not defile himself, that kept the Sabbath. And you know what? He was able to resist the tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar and the entire Babylonian empire. Why was he able to resist it? Because he was rooted in a subversive story. That's exactly what God's doing in Genesis. He has a subversive story. Work six days, completely take off on the seventh day. Let's continue on in the book. In 1793, in France, in an effort to increase human productivity, they de-Christianized the calendar for one year by modifying the seven-day week to a 10-day week. New clocks were even invented in France to reflect the revised week. The experiment, however, radically failed. Suicide rates skyrocketed, people burned out, and production decreased. Why? It turns out humans were not made to work nine days and rest only one in a week. Continues on. We were made to work six days and rest one. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. It's in the imago dei. It's it's in the image of God built into you. The seven-day week is not the result, watch this, of human ingenuity. Rather, it's a reflection of God's brilliance, of God's brilliance. You think about the 10 commandments for a moment. There is only one before the law and there's only one before the fall. And it's God coming directly to Adam and Eve and he tells them to keep a commandment. You know what it is? Keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, practice the Sabbath. God is saying, I rest, Adam, and I'm God, so you can rest just like me. So Sabbath, listen, is how we view and use time. Everybody say time. Abraham Heschel in his book, fabulous, another book on the Sabbath. He says this, he says, Sabbath is eternity uttering a day. Have you ever read such beautiful words this Thanksgiving week? Sabbath is eternity speaking into our finite time what eternity is gonna be like, resting in Jesus. Sabbath is eternity uttering into our every day or every week once a day. That's what he says. In other words, it's a movement of eternal glory speaking into our finite present world. And um, A.J. Swoboda, he actually uses the phrase called the cathedral, the cathedral of time. Now, many people, they wanna go on a pilgrimage where they visit the cathedral. And and he does this metaphor in his book that it's just to me is fascinating. So people like to do pilgrimage, Muslims to go to a cathedral. He talks about we as Christians go to a cathedral of time. And he says, it's not a building you walk into. It is is a, a time that you walk into that's different from the world. So there's natural time. There's what we call chronological time, right? And that's the tension we feel in this world. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? You look at the clock. We are driven by the clock. We know not how to be humans other than a clock. We are fully moving based on a clock, right? That's the first thing you do. Set the alarm, look at the clock, somewhere to go, productivity to happen. You are driven. You aren't led by you, you're led by a clock, okay? That's the reality. So what he does in this book is he begins to show to us that's the current reality, right? So we are driven by time and there is a big movement now in our culture and this is a secular movement. Right now, the goal is to get time back under your control. So look at the best sellers right now. It's how to get time back under control. Sabbath is not that. Sabbath is something altogether different. It's putting time under God's control and seeing what he can do with that time. 
So Sabbath, ready, is a 24-hour period of time where we rest and remember. We don't work, we use time differently, and we enter in, and we use time as a place we enter into for our own rest. Because we are in a culture of time sickness. So Sabbath, next slide, makes time not place holy. Sabbath makes time not place holy. In 1982, Larry Dossie, an American physician, he coined the term time sickness to describe the obsessive belief that time is getting away. There's not enough of it and you must pedal faster and faster and faster to keep up. It's a Western disease to make time finite and then to impose speed on all aspects of life. The problem is that our love of speed, our obsession with doing more and more in less and less time has gone too far. It has turned into an addiction, a kind of idolatry. Even when speed starts to backfire, we invoke the go faster gospel. Time sickness can also be a symptom of a deeper existential malaise. In the final stages before burnout, people often speed up to avoid confronting their unhappiness. Hey, bro, why don't you take a break? I can't. Why? Because I'll have to deal with myself. I'll have to think about life. I got to keep moving. There's, by the way, something now called, there's even called speed dating. I looked it up last night, speed dating. You know what that is? It's like, let me maximize as quickly as possible intimacy and falling in love. How do you do that? How do you maximize God's greatest gift of intimacy? (laughs) How do you speed that up without destroying you or the other person? Okay, God bless all the speed daters in Jesus' name if you're single, amen. I was doing my, finishing up my message last night. I went into my, my wife's, our room and my wife was asleep and I looked at the TV and I literally, no joke, looked at the bottom of the TV and they were promoting on, I think Fox News of all places. It said, happy in a hurry cookbook. I'm literally reading this and I go into my room and it says happy in a hurry. And now it's about how we can achieve happiness at the speed that we want as fast and fast. And this is the principle, are you ready? Sabbath is going to happen in your life. It's gonna happen because you burn out and have to rest, me. Or you choose it and you live in a culture of renewal. So we can say it like this, Sabbath is coming for you. It's either gonna be a gift or it's gonna be a mark of pain, but you'll have to do it. You'll have to Sabbath. So Sabbath is intended by God to be a gift in our life. God designed it to be a gift to us. Listen, church, there is no other nation on earth where God said, I wanna mark you. And one of the ways I'm gonna mark you and the, one of the ways you will find my life and you'll find my presence is not by work, is by not working one day per week. And he says, this is so important. You gotta learn to enjoy me and you gotta learn to rest. Now, I think it's important for us to say today that if we are going to maintain our Christian witness in our culture, then we must say rest has to be stronger than exhaustion for the people of God. We are not to live and trust the culture's rhythm. What is the culture's rhythm to form us nonstop, right? Even the sports world, I got three kids. We're like a taxi service, okay? It's like nonstop, why? If we let that culture form us and our kids, we will lose our kids and not be able to get our kids back. Why? Because season becomes lifestyle. Season becomes lifestyle. Now this leads to another question. And I hear you. How do I learn to do that, Pastor Craig? How do I learn to do that? Now, that's a key phrase, isn't it? Learn to do that. You have to learn to rest. You have to learn. If you're like me, rest confronts your idolatry. It's probably your, your, your most touchy subject, resting. That's, that's my, for me, it's productivity. That's my idolatry. 
nonstop, go, 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 go. Now, Marva Dawn wrote an extraordinary book, M-A-R-V-A Dawn, D-A-W-N, wrote an extraordinary book called Keeping the Sabbath Holy. Okay, I think they have an actual picture of it. It is beautiful, practicing the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. Anytime Eugene Peterson writes at the bottom and gives the deal, I'll read the book, okay? This book, excellent, excellent book. And she has four movements. She says, if you want to learn to Sabbath, you have to have four movements. Everybody say four. Now, this will give you a skill and a rhythm of life that enables you to have a a rhythm that's greater than fear, a rhythm that's greater than exhaustion. Here they are. Here's the four. Seizing, ceasing, resting, embracing, feasting. Ceasing, resting, embracing, feasting. So let's talk about each of them very quick. First one, ceasing. This is about stopping. Everybody say stop. This is what she says. She says on the Sabbath... Next slide. We deliberately remember that we have ceased trying to be God instead of put our lives back into his control. Concentrating in God's lordship in our lives enables us to return to his sovereign hands all the things that are beyond our control and that are terrifying us. Once those things are safely there in God's hands, and as long as we don't stupidly take them back again, come on somebody, our emotions can find truly comforting and healing rest. So the Sabbath is a day where we stop getting our value from what we produce. It's the one day a week where we stop getting our value from what we accomplish. And we say on a Sabbath, I will stop worrying what I haven't accomplished enough or I will stop worrying that I haven't accomplished enough. I'm gonna stop trying. So we have to put our, our own stories, okay? And we have to, to put up boundaries where we say this is sacred territory in my life. We have to put up those boundaries. If you're like me, you're gonna need people around you to help put up those boundaries, okay? And when you put up those boundaries, you say, God, this is where people can't touch me. So if people call me that day, I'm gonna have to say to them, sorry, you're gonna have to talk to God about that issue in your life. You have to do that. You have to set up that boundary, okay? You have to say, this is the boundary. I'm not gonna take that call if they reach out. They're gonna have to reach out to their connect group leader. I'm just speaking my life for a minute. They're gonna have to reach out to somebody else in their life. You have to put a boundary in place. Listen, not just a boundary in what you take on your phone, but what you think about. What you think about, okay? About your technology, about production. We were sitting down at Meredith's parents' house two nights ago and they started asking about our church. And I, I, I mistakenly responded inappropriately. I didn't know that. She brought it up to me the next day, but they were talking about the loan for our church and everybody wanted to get their two cents on what should we do about the loan. And I said, I don't want to talk about it right now. And they thought I was mad at them. But the reality was I didn't. I was sitting on the couch and I had that whole day where I wasn't thinking about the church and I didn't want to think about the church on the couch that night. Okay, that's a Sabbath. That's getting out. It's not just what you take on the phone. It's what you think about, what you're engaging. What, what's, and here, there is a huge body of scientific research that suggests even thinking about work releases the same chemicals that produce stress when we actually work. So you have to shut it down. You have to shut it down. I remember at 23 years old, my wife and I were married. We had one child and I finally got the chance to be the youth pastor at a mega church. Now, if that's not your world, that's like the Academy Awards of Christianity in the Western world, okay? That's like cloud nine, becoming youth pastor at a mega church. So I became youth pastor at a mega church and it was a lot of work, like a whole lot, (laughs) okay? Like lots and lots of work. And it was my first chance at being the main leader. And in my first year, we had to sign in, sign out. I averaged 76 hours a week in the office. That was my first year's average, 76 a week. Okay, that's not dealing with kids outside. That's, That's what I did there. 
76 hours a week, okay? And it was more and more work and more and more work. It grew really quickly. The ministry is very large. I, I couldn't shut it down. It was my first opportunity. We had our first child and Knox is an infant. He's an infant. And we are on like family Sabbath, right? We're like spending time by ourselves, but all this pressure's on me and there's so many problems to fix and so many problems to deal with. And I couldn't say to my wife, hey, I'm just gonna work while you and Knox enjoy your day. I couldn't say that, so I had to find ways to sneak around it, right? Well, imagine that continues on in my life. We plan a church years later. We now have two kids. We are gonna take a Friday to a family Sabbath at the Georgia Aquarium. So my wife and our two kids, we go to the Georgia Aquarium. This is year one of our church plan. And what happened? We're on a family Sabbath at the Georgia Aquarium and I am literally like, uh, like wanting to check my phone for my emails. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm with the family talking about Penny, which is a pet little penguin that my little probably five-year-old at that time, Marley got a little pink penguin and we're watching the dolphins and I'm like having to go to the bathroom, you know? And, you know, I'm thinking like Georgia Aquarium food's not that bad on your stomach, right? But I'm going to the bathroom. Why? Because I need to check my phone. And so when I get in the bathroom, I open up the phone and check and it hit me. I mean, it literally hit me as I'm there that day. I wanted to pull back and get some perspective for a moment. I'm a dad that wants to leave a legacy. I'm a father who wants to be present and I'm literally sneaking away from this family that only I can love to go into a toilet room to check a screen. That's when it hit me. What is life about? And then I ask myself, is that the man I want to be and the legacy I want to live? Uh, no. Now, you might not be sneaking off to the Georgia Aquarium toilets stalls at Georgia Aquarium, but is there something right now that you are literally sabotaging yourself because you literally won't stop? So what's your stall? What's your toilet room? We have to learn to stop. And there's a goal to stop, and that leads us to number two. It's so we can rest. Rest will not happen on an accident in Atlanta. Your boss will not say this week, you know what, why don't you just take some more days off? Last week, it was just awesome to see you off. You look tired and burned out. Actually, I'll cover for you. I'll do it for you. I'm just gonna take your job and mine. Your boss will not say that. So you know what that means? It's gonna get pushed down, pushed down, pushed down. You have to fight for rest. This is what Marva Don says. She continues on. The movement from ceasing to resting is the movement from idolatry to faith. First, we discover all the deception and falsehood of the securities offered by the world, and with repentance, we cease to trust them. This includes especially all of our efforts to make our own way to save ourselves. Then we learn that God has done all the work of redemption for us, and he continues to work through us. We learn by faith to rest in his grace. They actually now teach classes at seminary of how not to burn out. Why? Because so many pastors burn out. Y'all, we did a mentoring group at the church that I just mentioned a moment ago, I did this mentoring group 11 years ago with youth, youth pastors, next-gen pastors. I thought about it last night. I had the picture. Me and one other pastor and all of that group are still walking with God today, and it's only 11 years. It's only 11 years. People went crazy, divorces, burnout, family issues, total health crisis, heartache. They have to teach classes at seminary on how not to burn out. Because that's the culture we live in and people take the class and then they burn out the next year. 
So in Jesus intends for you to live life to the full. There's one thing I learned in seminary that was so powerful to me, and I want to close with this. This is the one thing that stuck with me, a couple of graphs that I want to show you. Jesus intends for you to live life to the full, and that's not the prosperity gospel. That's the true gospel. Like not wanting, we have a good shepherd, we shall not lack. We, this is not prosperity's preaching. This is us not wanting, our good shepherds leading us paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We're talking about living life to the full, Okay. And this is living life to the full. Would you show that slide? This is living life to the full. So you're completely living life to the full. The blue fills in the bar graph, okay? Next slide. What we do is we rest when we are almost completely empty. So this is what stuck with me in that seminary class. You rest when you get down there. So you see how the purple's gone all the way down? So once you get to that point, you start resting, okay? And again, here's what we say. I'm just gonna grind it out to Christmas. You might not make Christmas. And your marriage might not make Christmas. And your kids might not make Christmas because season becomes lifestyle in America. And when you're toast, when you're totally toast because you waited to this long to rest, okay, how much do you really get back to the fullness of Jesus? So when we rest, look what happens. That's how we normally recover. Okay, because we waited to get down there, we only recovered to 75%, okay? When we recover to 75%, You rarely ever get back to life to the full. But guess what? We lose when we don't get back to life in the full. Next slide. We lose joy. We lose peace. We lose intimacy. We lose sustainability. We lose calling. We lose margin. We lose wonder. We yell at our kids. We're ticked off at our kids. We hate our responsibilities. We lose kindness. We don't know how to interact with people anymore. We blow up in everybody's Facebook. We're mad or a hornet every single day. Why? Because we lose... What that last part, do you know, listen to me, listen to me, leave that side up. Do you know where sacrificial agape comes for the Woodstock city around you? Do you know where it manifests itself? When you are full, not when you're 75%. It only manifests, listen, we, we don't even have enough time for ourselves, much less for other people's drama. Listen, when I start feeling so upset with other people's drama within the own church I serve, I realize I've missed it. Something has happened. Why? Because we don't even have enough energy to love. We don't have enough energy to absolutely show sacrificial love to people. We're so burned out trying to have enough energy for our own lives and own marriages. And I just want to say, without life to the full, we can't be the kind of people Jesus imagines. So this is why rest is essential for discipleship. It's not some optional thing. We need spiritual rest. We need physical rest, emotional rest, intellectual rest psychological rest, social rest, all of those. Now, the problem with our culture is we know how to relax, but not how to renew. Come on, Abraham. Watching a whole season of Alone on the couch while eating Japanese food is amazingly relaxing. Hibachi sauce, cocaine sauce, throw that cocaine sauce on the top of the shrimp sauce, you know? Definitely got cocaine in it. It's relaxing, but it will not restore your soul. I don't leave watching alone with my destiny being released. I feel like I got the secret counsel of the Lord, right? Love popping out left and right, laying hands on sick people. I don't leave alone eating Japanese food that way, okay? So listen to me. If we're not being renewed into the best version of ourselves, what we're essentially doing is we're just medicating our mediocrity. So let me talk as I close about renewal, not just relaxation. Renewal. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, you remember a couple years ago, he came out with the 10,000 hour rule? 
You know what he said? The whole series of research, he said, to become world-class at anything, you have to practice three hours a day. And if you do that for 10 years, three hours a day for 10 years, you'll become world-class at anything you wanna become world-class at. But what was overlooked in the research was that, that others have now gone through and, and brought out is this simple concept. It's not just practice, it's what they call deliberate practice. You have to consciously learn what you're doing and practice that, and that's what turns you into world-class. Well, the same scientists, this is fascinating to me, have now gone back and done some research on rest, and what they've realized is that it's not just regular rest. He says, it's not just relaxation, three hours off a day won't necessarily renew you. It is what we call, next slide, deliberate rest. Deliberate rest. You say, Craig, what is that? That's the key. How do the streams of living water begin to replenish the deep places of your soul? You have to be honest with yourself. I want you to ask yourself that. How do the deep places of your soul get refreshed with living waters? Like, who has God specifically made me to be? How do I connect with him? Honestly, it's different for all of us. But if I'm 25 feet up in a tree and it's less than 30 degrees and I have camo on and I watch the sun pop up and I set till noon, the only way I could get closer to God on earth than that moment is if Meredith is sitting in the tree stand with me and that ain't happening. So I'll just take that as my top apex, okay? Seriously, you give me six hours in a tree stand less than 30 degrees and the sun pop up and watch wildlife in front of me and the deepest places of my soul, living water begins to flow. What is it for you? You have to know. You have to know how did God make me? And the only way is to be honest with yourself. But you gotta be deliberate about it. People often ask me, why did Jesus do so many miracles of healing on the Sabbath? And people's assumption is that he's trying to show the Pharisees you don't understand the Sabbath. I think he's trying to show people that when you create space for God, healing and miracles are unleashed in your life. That's why the daily, weekly privilege and practice of going to church every Sunday and making space for God, you will find even passively miracles that get released in your life. Healing will come to your life. Marva Dawn again, she says, according to Lerman's theory, failing to rest after six days of steady work will lead to insomnia or sleepiness, hormonal imbalances, fatigue, irritability, organ stress, and other increasingly seriously physical and mental symptoms. So you cease, you rest, and then you embrace. Everybody say embrace. We live in a culture that's constantly distorting our identity. And people talk about it a lot. Check this out from the New Yorker. This is Anne Rand reviews children movies. <laughs> this is so funny. They sent, someone sent this to me and it shows how adults crush Christian, or, or children's stories because children's stories don't work in real life. So it's supposed to be funny, but it's supposed to step on your toes. Look at the few reviews, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. An industrious young woman neglects to charge for her housekeeping services and is rightly exploited for her naivety. She dies without ever having sought her own happiness as the highest moral aim. I did not finish watching this movie, finding it impossible to sympathize with the main character, no stars. <laughs> Next one. The Muppet, Muppets take Manhattan. The movie was a disappointment. The Muppets do not take Manhattan at all. They merely visit it, no stars. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, an excellent movie. The obviously unfit individuals are winnowed out through a series of entrepreneurial tests and in the end, an enterprising young boy receives a factory. I believe more movies should be made about enterprising young boys who are given factories. Three and a half stars. Half a star off for the grandparents who are sponging off the labor of Charlie and his mother. If Grandpa Joe can dance, Grandpa Joe can work. 
Look at Henry Yu. Mary Poppins. A woman takes a job with a wealthy family without asking for money in exchange for her services. An absurd premise. Later, her employer leaves a lucrative career in banking in order to play a children's game. No stars. Anne ran. She, he said, Bambi, the biggest and the strongest are the fittest to rule. It's the way things have always been. Four stars. Four stars. Now, I say that as sort of a joke, but isn't it true? Look at me, church. Kids believe in wonder and rest, and why don't you play with me, Dad? And why don't you play with me, Mom? And we adults are like, because that's not how life works. And we crush and we tear and we turn everything into a utility. Utility is something to be useful. And that's how we perceive our value in the world. Not that our kids wrestle with us on the bed. It's that we're useful for the culture around us. Everything is conspiring to turn our lives into a utility. And if this gets into the Christian's heart, it is damaging. Why? It's toxic because instead of walking with God, we will have ambition to do things for God. we turn our relationship to God into a utility. Knox told me on Wednesday before we left for Thanksgiving, he stood up and it was just one of those moments, MC. And I'm next to him on the bed and he stood up and he's way taller on the bed. He looked at me, he said, Dad, wrestle me. That's what he said, wrestle me. And I set everything aside and I grabbed him and I sucker punched him in the gut slammed him on the Tempur-Pedic. Within 10 seconds, both kids in the house come running. Jump up on the bed. Because that's what life is. It's not a utility. It's not to be useful. It's not to turn and crush the wonder of children because that's not how life works. But that's what adulthood does to us. So what do we have to do? We have to embrace. We have to have our hearts converted. We have to have our hearts converted. Sabbath is when we take our heart, we take our head and we put it on the chest of Jesus. And we get renewed. And our identity is changed. A.J. Swoboda, come on worship team. This is what he said. Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do. Rather, we are who we are loved by. That's our identity, who we are loved by. So Sabbath is once a week heading into the chest of Jesus to have our ambition, our fear, our confusion converted into security and to love. So we have to choose to rest, to embrace, and then lastly, we have to choose to feast. Everybody say feast. Now, y'all can tell me, those who know me, I have black belt in feasting. I know how to eat. John Ortberg says this. He says, we have to arrange our life so that sin no longer looks good to us. Did you know if you attend a Shabbat, like a true Sabbath with a Jewish family, there are certain foods they only eat on Sabbath. They don't eat any other foods. There's certain songs they only sing on Sabbath. And what they try to do is they try to turn a 24-hour period into a cornucopia of delight. There's a psychological principle in today's world called pleasure stacking, where you save all your pleasures and you stack them all Sunday. On your Sabbath, you just stack them one after the other until your heart burst with joy. It's called pleasure stacking. And what we've done is we've turned Sabbath into going to church and we wonder why our kids hate it. 
as if it's a place just to go rather than an entire day and space and time that we give ourselves to God and his purpose. To his purpose. So we pleasure stack. Food, sex, beauty, relationships, music. That's what you do on the Sabbath. And rabbis in the Jewish culture said, even if you're married on Sabbath, he said, if you're married on the Sabbath, you should have sex. Some of you right now are considering protecting the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath. Honey, it's Sabbath. (laughs) We must have Sabbath. Why? Because look at me, church. We have an IV right now of the world's brokenness into our arms. And we are feeling ourselves with the world's brokenness. Every Our news feeds are filled with HD images of exhaustion, of brokenness, of sin, of heartache, of pain. If we don't get a fresh source, we will experience compassion fatigue. And you know what compassion fatigue is? That means we will feel generally bad about everything, but we won't have the capacity to love anyone. So we have to have a fresh source. And what we do is when we feast and we restore and we renew and we take in beauty and hope and the age to come, we have something that fights the antibodies of brokenness. So some of you, you're gonna have to learn to feast on the goodness of God. Feast on it and appreciate all of his gifts. Last quote of Heschel, he said, the highest goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. So you can wake up again to the wonder in the world and see it again. Why? Because it's a life-giving rhythm and rest. So what do we do? We cease, we rest, we embrace, and we feast. For me, I normally do it at about Friday at 5 p.m. and try to go to Saturday at 5 p.m. You say, Craig, because that's a Shabbat. No, be honest with you, but about midday Saturday, if I'm preaching, my mind's on preaching. There's no Shabbat. There's no Sabbath for me. So I'm not trying to get you legalistic today. I'm just trying to tell you there's a principle. You, you, you do what works for your family, but I'm going to ask you this week, practice. Practice the Sabbath. Find what works for you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.